scale of one to ten, how responsible are you? Don't share your answer, just think about it. Scale of one to ten, one being not very at all, and ten being highly responsible. Um, no matter what number that you give yourself, or the number other people might hand to you, there is this responsibility gene that has been designed into you. And this is what nags you when you're laying on the couch. This is what bothers you as you're wandering the mall. This is what calls, calls to you when you're sitting on the beach. There's this little thing inside of us that understands and knows that we have some responsibilities. We have some duties to tend to. We're in the fourth part of our study in Romans. We've taken the book of Romans and we've broken it into four chunks, so to speak. And what we're looking at is discovering specifics of our responsibilities. Looking at what is it that specifically we are to do. Romans 12 starts off by showing our responsibilities to God, our responsibilities to loved ones, our responsibilities to regular Joes, just people that we don't maybe know, and then even, looking at last week, our responsibilities to our enemies. Furthermore, it points to how we are able to carry out our responsibilities. So it's not just a list of to-dos, but rather it's to say, here's, here's how you are actually capable of carrying out your responsibilities. We've already seen from Romans 12 this, that it's to be only done in view of God's mercies. That you carrying out your responsibilities is only as you present your bodies to God in worship. You are able to carry out your responsibilities only as you are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And you are able to carry out the responsibilities God has for you only as you test and discern what God's good, perfect will is. Romans 9 through 21 is a sort of code of conduct, and it really is this celebration of this law of love that we are under. And the, the capacity to walk in this way is this newness of life that, that God gives to us. And it's not just for those who treat us well. It's not just for sunny days. It's also for Mondays, which is representative of all the difficult times that we go to. The love of Christ not only frees us to walk this way, but the love of Christ compels us to walk this way. Now, in light of last week where we talked about vengeance being the Lord's, Again, this isn't personal sharing time, but just think about it. Anyone have a desire for revenge this last week? Anyone have little fantasies about how you might get back at someone who was getting back at you? Even if it's just on the roadways, right? Now, part two to the question. Anyone leave room for the vengeance of God? Anyone as an act of worship say, God, that's in your hands, I heard from the scriptures last week that I'm not to take revenge, that I'm not to retaliate. So as an act of worship, I release that and I, and I wander away from that. You know, just in, in uh, sort of my own reading and studying and just sort of coming across things, I came across all of these after last Sunday's message, but they popped off the page to me because of what we looked at, the last part of Romans 12. The idea that no revenge, think about Jacob and Esau. Think about uh, David and Saul. Think about Joseph and his brothers. If you don't know those biblical stories, man, go back and read them because here's what we see. When no revenge is taken, when no retaliation is taken, 
it opens the door for incredible scenes of God's redemptive power. Had it been taken, it closes the door for God to be glorified in those ways. What people mean for evil, God means for good. So Christian, don't derail God's redemptive power by meeting evil with evil. Here's where we're going today. Today we are going to wade into argumentative territory. We are going to do so fearlessly, and we are going to do so joyfully. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have one part of my family where it's outlawed to talk about religion and politics at family get-togethers. Uh, anyone else have families like that? Uh, why, why would you outlaw politics and, re- and religion being discussed? Why? Just nothing but sparks, right? Just conflict going on con- constantly. Here's what's fantastic. Paul brings up both of these in our passage today, but catch this. He throws in taxes and submission for good measure. So, I mean, we are, we're just getting it all in seven short verses. We're, we're going to hit on all kinds of things that stir up all kinds of emotion. Now, I'm really excited to go here because this is where God has led us. When you follow a letter through its logical conclusion and when you just see it through, God leads you into discussions. And, and answer me this, has there ever been a time in your life that you can remember where clarity on what God wants from us in light of politics and government is needed more than right now. I mean, this is such a needed thing to have a clear-cut word from God on these matters. So I've been praying along these lines that we would get that this morning. In fact, let me open us in a time of prayer for that. God, we are a people who says, in God we trust. And in God we trust is more than a slogan. It means something to us. And so, God, I pray that just now, as we read your word, as we listen to your voice, as we test and discern what your will is for our lives and collectively as a church, we trust and expect that you would speak to us. God, we say at the outset that we will submit to your leadership in all matters. In Jesus' name, amen. I am wearing this jersey this morning um, for a few reasons. One is I always thought it'd be cool to preach in a hockey jersey. I've never done it, uh, but now I have. Uh, But mainly, it is proclaiming some really big truths this morning. It's sort of a tangible visual of what we're talking about. I am an American citizen. I was born right here in California, And I have been an American citizen all of my life. Uh, I also helped make a few more Americans with my lovely wife and the help of God. Uh, And I also helped turn um, citizens of other countries into Americans. Uh, So we've been in that line, immigrants only, at SFO a few times. And joyfully, through paperwork and a few dollars, created some American citizens. So I am, I, am, I am born in this country, I am a citizen of this country, and I'm a Christian, which means that I've been born again into a kingdom, and I'm a citizen of an eternal heavenly kingdom. Now, Christian happens to be a hockey company that makes hockey gear, but when I saw this jersey uh, that said USA and Christian, I'm like, boom, i got to snatch that up because I play a lot of hockey when I was younger, um, and so I snatched this thing up. I love wearing this, this, this jersey around because it strikes up some good conversation. Uh, 
But this jersey paints this picture that I am both a Christian and I'm an American, and there's some tension to that. There's a lot of joy with both of those. Anyone loving the Olympics? So fun, right? It's the only time in our marriage where I get to watch sports with my wife, and, and it's not like I'm hogging the TV. Like, we actually watch it together. Um, anyone find themselves watching curling recently? I mean, spoiler alert, gold medal. I'm like, we have to watch this. And, and Becky's literally on, on Google, like trying to discover what's even happening. We don't know. But now we know that you take it to the house and there's the button and I mean, all kinds of stuff. And yeah, it's still kind of boring. But it was, it was interesting to watch um, curling. Um, but here's the other thing about a hockey jersey. If you strap on a jersey of any kind of any sport, even curling, maybe not so much curling, but hockey for sure, you know you're in for a fight, Right? I mean, you skate out there, you know you're about ready to get popped. You keep your head up if, you're, if you've got the puck. You are planning on a fight. And I wear this jersey today to be a visual to us, to say that being a Christian in America means this. We have some teammates that God has provided. We have, think about hockey players and what they wear. We have the armor of God that we better be suited up for or else hockey hurts a whole bunch more. And we have a very real, very aggressive, very persistent opponent. In fact, he's more than an opponent. He's an enemy. And there's life or death at stake. So that's what you see when you see a jersey this morning. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk through the plain teaching of Scripture this morning, and then I'm going to move very quickly on to where the tension lies, and here's why. We planted this church 11 years ago, and if God brought us a whole bunch of anarchists and tax evaders, then when we get to this passage of Scripture, I would have spent the whole time really laying out in detail the teaching of Scripture. The truth is, we don't have a bunch of anarchists and tax evaders that I know of that generally attend our church. And so I think that the conviction and clarity of this teaching is really straightforward and really simple. So I'm going to move very quickly through the teaching of the Scripture, and then I'm going to land heavy on where the tension lies for a Christian to be a Christian in America. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. It's not going to be on the screen uh, this morning. But starting in verse 1, submit because it's right. I'm going to give you three submits. Submit because it's right. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Here's what it says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. We submit to governing authorities because it is right. Interesting here that Paul makes no clarifications about which people. He says everyone. Literally, it's every soul is to do this. Everyone is to submit to the government. Notice there's no qualification on the government. Are there some governments that are better or worse than others according to the principles of Scripture? Of course. It's true today. It's true throughout history. No qualifications are made. It's important to recognize that God is the source of all authority and all other authority is derived from him. So God is the authority and all of the authority is derived from him. I want you to listen to a passage from Isaiah 40. This is the God who is. 
This is God as he reveals himself. Whether we bow our knee to him or not, whether we acknowledge him or not, here's the God who is. Isaiah 40, 21 says this, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest comes and carries them off like stubble. You'll notice in this title slide that the focus looms large on this king. You'll notice that uh, a second thing is that the king is a game piece. Here's the point. We submit as an act of worship uh, to God. It's submitting to God when we submit to government. Now, when you see that it's a chess piece, a game piece, how difficult is it for us to flick over a game piece? A game piece is nothing unless the person setting up the game allows it to be something. And God has given authority. God has instituted authority and dished it out as he sees fit. We submit to governing authorities because we trust and worship the sovereign king. Here's number two. We submit because it is wise. We submit because it is wise. Look at verse three. Verse three says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, just like reading Romans twelve nine that says, let love be genuine, and on it goes with this lifestyle that sounds almost naive, like Paul, who really lives that way? Be tempted to read Romans 13 and say, is he saying this tongue-in-cheek? I mean, really, this kind of naive to think that that's what governments actually do, is that they always support good and always, you know, uh, veer away from, from wickedness. Mind you, he ends his life, Paul does, in a jail under Nero, one of the most historically wicked rulers known to human history. He's not being naive. He is laying out, he's painting the ideal He is sharing the truth of God that there is a design to the institution of government that God initiated and set up. And this is the rule for law. If you want to be free from fear of authority, he says, do what is right. I can remember, you know, when I was a kid, uh, the show Chips was on, and it was a lot cleaner than there's sort of a raunchy movie version that came out. Uh, 
the trailers are enough to tell you, please don't watch that movie. But the show itself uh, was about these two highway patrol. And so, you know, I had three brothers and all four of us wanted to be cops at some point. And we'd be driving around and we'd be like, dad, there's a cop. And the implication was, slow down, start doing the right thing. And my dad would always go, great. They're out doing their job. And his behavior didn't change one iota. You know why? Because my dad just followed the laws. That's how my dad drove. And, and so he would be driving down the freeway. We'd constantly point out cops. Then it got to be no fun anymore. He's like, well, never mind. It doesn't really matter. My dad didn't fear getting tickets at all. He just didn't. Because he just obeyed the law. That's how he drove. Now, many of us in this room could humbly take a lesson from my dad, right? Some of you are learning the expensive way uh, to follow the laws of the land, and, and uh, others of you have um, a long way to go with that. <clears throat> Living in rebellion is exhausting and dangerous. Again, some of you could just tell your story. And say, man, living in rebellion, it is. It's exhausting and dangerous. Constantly the fear of getting caught and, and wondering and, 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 you know, and, and holding up charades. If you are doing so, so if you are living in rebellion, here's my advice to you. You better make sure who you are rebelling against and why. And whose approval you are seeking. So there is some government approval that you don't want as a Christian right? You would say, man, I don't want that approval because they are approving what is absolutely opposed to Scripture. So much evil has been done, done in the name of God that was just flat-out rebellion. It wasn't something we should attach God's name to. So submit because it's wise. Here's the third one. Submit out of conscience. Submit out of conscience. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, catch this, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. The average person may only submit because it's good for them and their consequences. They're just seeking to avoid bad consequences. There's a certain wisdom to just uh, subjecting yourself in those regards. But Christians aren't so self-serving. Christians don't submit to the government just to avoid bad consequences. Because we do it as an act of worship, because we live our life completely before God, we will subject and be submissive to the government authorities even if there's no threat of being caught. Why? Because it's an act of worship to God and God sees all. So it's different than just avoiding the punishment. That's a part of what conscience means. Submit out of conscience. Submit as an act of worship. We all know, too, you can submit with your actions and not submit with your mind, right? Your attitude still is an absolute rebel, but your actions are doing the right thing. We're transformed by renewing our minds. So our whole thought process toward authority is transformed by Christ, and that's an ongoing sanctification-type process. But here's the second part of conscience. 
Conscience also means that we never obey uncritically. We never just obey and submit to the authorities without thinking because, well, that's, that's the authority, and so I've just read this one part of Scripture. We have a whole bunch of other scripture that is there. This is where people at the end say, well, I was just obeying orders, right? I mean, I was killing people. I was doing all this horrible stuff. I did things I know was wrong, but I was just following orders. We never blindly obey the governing authorities uncritically. So for the sake of conscience, we'll obey even when there's no threat of being caught, even when there's no threat of civil uh, you know, punishment, And we will never obey uncritically. This is where I want to spend the bulk of our time today because that's where the tension lies. I was thinking about this, that Christian citizens should keep government officials awake at night in every country, in every age, and here's why. On the one hand, they go, man, I wish everyone in our, in our country that I rule, everyone in my city that I'm over, I wish they were all Christians. I mean, they're the best citizens. They're the best workers. They pay their taxes even when no one shows up. They bring it to me. I never have to put them in jail for crimes. They're never about uh, promoting evil. They're always about promoting good. They do so with what, what seems like to me an honoring, respectful thing. When I, when I charge them fines, they pay their fines in full without argument. On the other hand, I wish no one was a Christian in my city. I wish we had no Christians in this country. And here's why. Those pesky Christians keep poking at my conscience. Their high morals actually expose my wicked sort of underhanded dealings and my shading of the truth. They keep calling that out. I think Christians ought to be utterly perplexing to politicians. Not sure if they want them all to be Christians or none of them to be Christians. Let's do this. Let's sort of do a report card for the role of citizens and the role of our government for a moment, okay? So just according to the scriptures, the role of citizens is to submit, to do what is good, to pay what is owed, whether that's taxes or revenue, fines, that sort of thing, or respect or honor. What's the role of government? The role of government is to protect, right? To restrain and rule, to protect people from one another, um, and so that's part of what we see in here. They don't bear the sword for, for, for nothing. God doesn't appoint everyone to run around being anarchists, but appoints authority to do that. The role of government also is to punish, to impose punishment on evil doers. Peter brings this out as well. And finally, the role of government is to promote, to promote to work for good as servants of God and to work against the spread of evil. And this theme is carried all through Romans, but particularly here in Romans 12, right? Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Never overcome evil with evil, and don't be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good. So the function of government is that, and all of that should be done as God's servants. Do you know that servant leadership isn't just for pastors and elders? Servant leadership is commanded of our governing authorities. That's kind of shocking to me. 
Because I know that's true in the church. I know that that's how it's designed there. But the same exact word minister is used here. Servants of God is said in two different ways in these short verses. Powerful to know that if you're heading into politics, that your, uh, your job description is laid out here. How you are to rule is, is laid out here before God. That, is a, that serves as a warning to all of our politicians who are granted power in any country. It's to be done under authority. All politicians are to lead under the authority of God. They'll give an account for it. And finally, for the good of others and not for the good of self. That is the great temptation of leadership, isn't it? You've been granted power. People go into positions of power for the common good, to get low and to serve other people. And what's the great temptation of a leader? But to suck more and more power, to suck more and more authority, to suck more and more influence. Tell me, does this ring a bell at all in the political scene? That's the great temptation. Report card. Let's start with ourselves. First, you as a citizen. How are you doing in this? If your first gut response is is not submission and subjection out of fear of God, then you need to rework and rethink your theology on this. It's laid out really clearly in Scripture. How are you doing as a citizen at, at following the laws and following the rules and doing what you are to do? Now, moving on to your government. How is your government doing? Do you even know? One of the things about our country is some of us lead such comfortable lives that we we may not even know what's really happening. So how are you doing? How is your government doing? Now, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the tension that exists here. Here's 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 the principle that I want you to walk away with. The principle is this. We as Christians living in the United States as citizens are to obey right up to the point that you are commanded to do something that is against God's explicit commands. That you ought to obey and submit right up to that point of which you're being asked to do something that is an illegitimate request. In other words, you're being commanded. Let me me quote Wearsby here for a second who said this. If the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. We see this with Peter and the other apostles as they put it this way to the Sanhedrin. We must obey God rather than men. Here is a follow-up principle. Your resistance, your civil disobedience, if something gets to a point of civil disobedience, your no carries so much more weight if you have been consistently saying yes, yes, yes to every legitimate demand. There's another place in Scripture in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere that God sets up the husband as the authority of the home. Some have been in abusive relationships. Is there a wide range of husbands? Yes. Is it clear how husbands should behave? Absolutely. Is that the ideal and not, you know, the the experience of everyone? Absolutely. 
I have watched God receive great glory as a wife submits with honor and respect right up to the point to where an illegitimate command is being made of that wife. An illegitimate uh, forbidding of, of that wife is being made. And still in a respectful way, but they refuse. They utterly refuse. In America, we live in a place where increasingly, in my lifetime, I am seeing more and more needles pushed. I'm a student of history just because I love it. I didn't like it in school. I wish I would have been more of a student then, would have gotten better grades. But I look back on the history of our country, and I see different places where this is so. Isn't it true that God's people seem to regularly be in trouble with the world governments? I mean, this is true all through Scripture. This is true all through history. So now it's our turn. Now it's our generation. What about us? Let me point to Exodus 1. You can just jot down Exodus 1 and read this later. But the midwives of Israel were commanded to kill the sons that were born in Egypt. And what did they do? They disobeyed that. Because their government, their ruling authorities, were commanding them to do something that's forbidden by God. And you know what God does with that? He blesses them. He blesses the midwives for disobeying government. Now, curiously, that's a wicked regime asking a wicked uh, command. And out of that action of civil disobedience, you know what happens? Chapter 2 comes along in Exodus. God raises up Moses. Moses one day would be a legitimate authority. He would step into this position of authority. And we can agree. We can look at the history and say, Moses was a pretty good leader. Not perfect. He overcame evil with evil and killed a guy and had to flee. And that didn't work out so well. Not a perfect leader. But through civil disobedience, God raised up a legitimate authority and leader in Moses. How about Moses for a second? If you contrast stubborn Pharaoh, what was Pharaoh's deal with the Egyptians? He didn't want them to go out and worship God. That's unequivocally not allowed. That's really simple. That's really straightforward. So you have stubborn Pharaoh and you have humble servant Moses leading the people out. After 10 plagues, what happens? The Egyptians are begging him to leave. Get out of here. So we see a contrast in that. How about Daniel in the Old Testament? Daniel was active in civil affairs in a very pagan place called Babylon. He was active right up to the point of where he was commanded to do something that he knew he was supposed to do, worship God. If you are told you can't pray to God, you disobey that. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Once again, they faced a common problem. They were active in civil affairs, and rulers back in the day, and this is still true elsewhere in the world today, get confused that they are little g gods, and so they demand worship. We do it in a more sort of republic democratic way here, um, but again, that's, that's the lust of leadership, right? This confusion. So what happens uh, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They are demanded to bow down and worship. That's forbidden. Shall have no other gods before me. So they disobey. 
What's interesting about all three of those examples, Moses, Daniel, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do you see that there's a, um, there's a sense of, of respect and not, you know, sort of in your face as they engage with the government authorities? Go back and read it. If all you have is sort of the children's version in your mind, go back and read the accounts. It's pretty powerful. Let's move on to the New Testament. Jesus' troubles with earthly leaders is well documented, right? I mean, he spoke about being a king and a kingdom and, and, and it being greater than, than this authority that was over him. So well documented, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can just read it for yourself. And how about Paul? Paul wrote the book of Romans that we're reading right now. You might ask, isn't it hypocritical for Paul to write Romans 13, 1, that we should all submit to government authorities when Paul is well known for being in hot water, being arrested, being before you know, municipal courts, supreme courts. I mean, all, he was constantly in trouble with the law. Isn't that hypocritical of him? It's not, and I'll show you why. I want to recap some highlights of Paul's life. Paul is an author, and there's a whole series of letters known as the prison epistles. The prison epistles are not the subject matter. The subject matter isn't prison. The location of where he wrote them was prison. He wrote these from a prison cell. He was arrested many times, brought before municipal-type leaders, as well as having his cases kind of move up in, in rank. He was in trouble with Jewish lawmakers, Greek lawmakers, and Roman lawmakers. Paul models what he teaches, though. He is subject in his actions and submissive in his attitude, even while he is disobeying as an act of worship. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 21. I want to walk you through one scenario. This is one episode of many, but it highlights so much of what he's teaching in Romans 13. Paul's a follower of Jesus, which means this. He takes seriously every command that Jesus gives, and he trusts that it's for his own good to obey it. So what did Jesus say? He said, I'm sending you out, disciples, as sheep amongst wolves. It's going to be a fight. You've got an enemy. So be innocent as what? Doves and shrewd as serpents. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So you be innocent as doves and you be shrewd as serpents. I want to show you from Paul's life how he lived this out. Acts 21, starting in verse 30, says this. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the, to the tribune of the cohort that, the Jerusalem, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. What does Romans 13 say? It says that government leaders do not bear the sword for nothing. Do you see that Paul's life was spared in this moment because the government has a sword? That they came and that, that put the fear of the sword uh, in front of these people and it stopped the mob from killing Paul. Look down to verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? 
Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the, uh, of, of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of, of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Verse 40, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, and, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, Hear the defense I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said. I won't go into his speech. You can read that later, but that's shrewd right there. Paul's understanding and use of language opened a door to first address the crowd, right, by speaking in Greek to the, to the tribune, knowing how to speak the language. Then he addresses them, brothers and fathers, in their own Hebrew language, and that drew in the interest. That's, that's a shrewd move right there. Here's what he does. He goes on to share his testimony. He basically says, look, I too once persecuted the way. I met Jesus. Everything changed. I was there at the stoning of Stephen. And then all of a sudden, the, the mob gets whipped up again and decides, nope, this guy needs to die. Acts 22, verse 24. Keep going. It says this. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched, out, stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are, we about, what, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, you are a Roman, a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Just so you know, birth trumps being paid to be a citizen. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had had him bound. Once again, do you see the shrewdness of this? Do you see how shrewd it is to understand the law and to understand how and when to bring this up in such a way that he, he allowed the law to keep him from being beaten? Verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Once again, such shrewdness, right? Here, you're going to judge me, and yet you're going to violate the very law you propose to, to have fair judgment on. But then the moment that he realizes that that is a government official, that that's a high priest, then he immediately withdraws. Do you see the respect? He is still doing civil disobedience, but he's doing it in such a way that as we saw in Romans 12 last week, that he's acting honorable in the sight of all people. It, it shows off the light, which shows off the utter darkness of those around him. Here's what I'm taken with by this. This is one example, friends. 
Paul lived in undeniably and unbelievably difficult times. His government has moved way beyond where our government is sort of heading to a point of actively and openly oppressing Christians, violently. And yet, Paul fulfilled his mission. Here's the hope you have. The same spirit that dwelt in Paul dwells in us. The same risen Jesus that guided and empowered Paul to live out his responsibility in front of the government empowers and enlivens us to do the same. So why are God's people so often at odds? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. (coughs) One is evil. You can just jot down the word evil. There is an evil system. I don't care if you vote Democrat, Republican, green, independent, whatever. There is an evil world system, and that's what's driving decisions. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me tell you what submitting to government leaders is not. It is not uncritically trusting government leaders. Sadly, you don't think politician and immediately go, trustworthy. That's not the first thing that jumps into your mind, is it? I mean, that's laughable, right? So submitting is not uncritically trusting of them. In fact, most often, you ought, to, you ought to have submission be your first thing as a worship of God, but trusting is not the first thing that comes to mind. Out of conscience, you say, what's, what's going on behind this? What's the power behind this? Here's another thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean relying on your government. Christian, aren't you to trust and rely on God alone? Done deal. You are to trust and rely on God alone. As you look at the U.S. government and many governments around the world, you see a clinging to for dependence, a clinging to for trust. Policies and laws put in place that foster that from the people such that if the government goes away, the world falls apart. Again, thinking critically above the cloud level. Trusting and relying on anyone else is an idol. Here's one clear example of this. Now, I said at the start that we have a very aggressive and very, uh, very persistent enemy. One of the things that Satan has done, quite plainly, is to, to seek to remove a creator from the government. Remove a creator from the minds of people. Here's what happens when you remove creator is this. Where do rights come from? Where do the rights of people come from? Our creator. So if you remove the creator, we have a problem. Because then we have the question of where do rights come from? Second sentence of the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be what? Self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among those are 
Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Remove creator from that sentence. Where do they come from? If the government's role is to protect your rights, and yet we don't have a creator that gives them, if the government gives your rights, you know what? There's a huge problem there because they can ethically and legally remove those rights at any given time. If they're the ones that give the rights, they can yank them away. Another option might be, well, no, rights come from the individual. You don't have any right over me, and I don't have any right over you to, to, to tell that authority because I'm not in authority in that way. You're not in authority in that way. We don't have the right over individuals to tell other people if rights just come from us. How about the mob? How about the masses, right? Majority rule. Well, same thing. If the majority decides to give a right or take it away, and that's really where rights come from, we have a massive problem. Rights come from God. So when you go and you read your history and you realize things, it's not that rights were suddenly given to slaves. It's that rights were then recognized. They had always been there. And now they were just being granted because the government caught up with what was true from the beginning. Rights are given by God. And I'd encourage you, my friend Neil Mommen spoke here, I think in 2016, there's a podcast on our website. Um, he actually toured around with the governor of Kansas, um, just kind of talking about this, this whole topic. But some really powerful truth to sort of get your head around this. Purpose of government is to secure rights. When this is threatened, we must resist. When a creator is removed, it throws a wrench in everything, of course. Here's another reason why Christians are so regularly opposed to and by governments, and that's because they are the conscience of the government. It turns out that people in power don't like to be told that there's a higher power over them. Crazy, huh? Remember our thing that says that this is what I can handle and this is what I care about. We had some balls hanging in here, and inside was a smaller ball. Here's what I was thinking about. That smaller sphere is the, the realm of authority given to a president, to a king, to a magistrate, to a whatever you want to call that person. And then there is this much greater sphere, and the one that rules it all is the one outside the sphere, that's God. So what happens is there's huge problem when small little sphere begins to try and demand this right here, right? This was Pharaoh's problem. This was the pagans in Babylon's problem. This was Nebuchadnezzar's problem. I mean, just read it in, in history. Read it in the scriptures. Jesus said this. You know, hey, should we pay taxes or not? Remember what he says? He says, show me a coin. Whose inscription's on it? It's Caesar's. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Caesar demands taxes. Give him taxes. That's right. Give to God's what is God's. Right? Whose inscription is stamped on us? the image of the maker. We're made in God's image. So that is yield your body in worship. Yield your mind to be transformed to think how God wants to think. There's always problems when uh, little, little kings begin to usurp their authority and reach and grab for more and more. I want to read for you some thoughts given by our elders. I reached out to our elders this week and I said, guys, you know, there's a, 
there's wisdom in a plurality of, of, of counselors, right, to, to kind of get some collected wisdom. And um, what I asked our elders to do is this. I said, guys, can you tell me some of the things that you've been intentional about with your own children as to how to train them up being Christians in the United States of America and with this tension that is going on? And I thought they just gave some really, really good input. Uh, one that a couple of the guys mentioned was this, that you will stick out. We, we have taught our children that you will stick out. We have taught our children that we live in an epicenter of sort of progressive lunacy that, that is like way beyond what's normal. And so when you're in a class and your teacher asks you to raise your hands if you believe in a creator, plan on being the only one. But raise your hand. And here are some ways to kind of cope with that and deal with that, because that's, you're going to feel a lot of pressure to not raise the hand. Know that there's other, whole other parts of the country where much of the class might still raise their hand. So first of all, know that you will stick out for following Jesus. Here's another one. Um, just the concept to reinforce with our kids regularly that, that the source of truth is Scripture. We don't look to the government to teach us our morals. We don't lean on the schools to teach us what is right and wrong. We certainly don't look to the courts to make decisions on matters of morality. Another one is this, to give your kids examples and point out, and this takes paying attention, by the way, point out examples of where there's been significant overreach. And as I was talking to one of our elders, he said, that's actually much, much too polite of a term. There has been significant overreach by our government in some very clear ways. Here's a couple. The court's deciding that it is okay to murder unborn children. The court's deciding when life begins. Secular institutions, masked as science, deciding and teaching the prescribed rule of understanding about where we came from that we came from mud, that time plus chance is how we are here. There's no designer and no design. The courts and legislative system deciding that the rights of a child outweigh the rights of parents, that an individual can decide what their gender is. On our team, we have elders who have their kids at public school, elders who have their kids at private Christian school, and elders who homeschool. And let me tell you something that I celebrate. We're unified. Those are deeply personal, intimate decisions to be made. It's part of the hard thing of being a parent, isn't it? To make decisions like that for your family. And what I would encourage you, since we have a lot of young children around here, is I would encourage you to seek the Lord regularly on this. Don't just set yourself on a path, well, I was raised this way and I turned out okay. The schools are different and they're changing every year. Your individual kids may need a different choice than their siblings did. The school that you're in now might have a community and a, a flow of information that works well, but by the time you get to the next section up, that is no longer present. So what I would say is this, seek out wisdom from others who've gone before you, and seek out counsel from the Lord on that. Here's what, here's what God does in this passage. God appoints rulers and governments, and God knows and will bring about justice. 
I was thinking about little Ruby, who's a six-year-old who integrated into a Montgomery school way back in the day. I tell you, the pictures uh, and bravery of that, she was taught by her mom, you pray to God. He'll never let you down. He will never leave your side. I read about Rosa Parks, who couldn't have possibly imagined that day that she got on the bus, paid her bus fare. By the way, you can't walk through the white section, so she had to back down the stairs, walk to the back of the bus, go in the middle section, right behind the white section, but in front of the black section, and she sat herself down. Could she ever have imagined Decades later, she'd be meeting with presidents and receiving awards for what she had done. That's not why she did it. She did it because she was convinced that she had rights that were given to her by her creator. And she knew her creator, and he empowered her through that. God sees all. And God will bring justice, whether in your lifetime or not. And we walk in that, and we trust in that. Here's what we do. We submit to all legitimate authority. If your government is making a legitimate demand of you, you follow it for conscience sake. You follow it as an act of worship. Secondly, we pray for those that we are under. That's true for your church leaders. I would be thrilled if you said, Dave, I pray for you regularly. I pray for the elders regularly. Thank you. Keep it up. Please do that for our city, state, and national leaders. And thirdly, respectfully disobey when it's required. You had to really get clear on what hill you would die on. You had to get really clear on what it is that you say, yep, that's a line in the sand I will not cross because God forbids that, and so I will not participate. Would you bow your heads with me? 1 Timothy 2 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior.